another episode of the Millennial Momentum Podcast. Wednesday, August 29th, 2018, coming at you. Uh, Tommy Tahoe here, and if you listen to this show, you know I'm on a path. <laughs> you know, I want to get better. I want to get more money. I want, um, you know, the promotion. I want a great mentor. I want to be smarter. I want to be healthier. I want better relationships. I want it all, and uh, I know you do too. And us millennials get a bad rap for being lazy and entitled, but you know if you're here, you're ready to work for it, and you're ready to put in the time. And um, you know I'm sharing my journey and doing some of that hard work so that you can take these lessons and, and apply them to your life. So thank you so much. Very grateful that you're listening today. Uh, a few housekeeping things before we get into today's interview. Um, you can find info from this show from my blog. All the info that you need about Millennial Momentum uh, right now on tomalamo.com. That's T-O-M-A-L-A-I-M-O.com. I'm doing a site refresh that's coming soon. It's going to be great. Um, But for now, you can find the content there. Tommy Tahoe on Instagram, on Twitter, on YouTube. And please, if there's one thing you do that you find value from in this episode uh, and one thing you do as a follow-up, please... Wherever you're listening to this, just hit the old subscribe button, uh, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or SoundCloud or Stitcher, and uh, a five-star review. That Taking the 47 seconds uh, it takes to do that means a lot. I do this on the side. I have a full-time job in software sales. I do this on the side, uh, you know, 4 to 7 a.m. and 7 to 10 p.m. and on the weekend. So please, this, it really does mean a lot if you could do that. Um, or hit me up on social media. I'll, I'll help you to do that. So, okay, let's get into today's conversation. Today I have a really, really special guest. So um, his name is Goddard Abel. And um, there's a famous Mark Cuban quote that says, in business, you only need to be right once. And what he means by that is if you if you have one great idea, you execute it well, you do all that just one time, you can be a very, very wealthy man. And uh, Goddard Abel doesn't quite believe in that because uh, he's in his mid-40s and he's already been right twice. Uh, in 2013, he sold his uh, company, software company, Big Machines to Oracle for $400 million. Um, and then in late 2015, he sold his next company, Steelbrick, to Salesforce for $360 million. So in a couple year span, he sold two companies to two of the biggest organizations in the world for three quarters of a billion dollars. Um, but you know, what the story that Abel tells is far from an overnight success story. You know, big machines took nearly a dozen years to build. He told me that they missed their sales number every year for the first seven years. And with about a million dollars left in the bank, they his team had to decide, do we keep pushing forward? Do we call it a wash? Uh, and good thing that they, they kept their nose in it. Um, and a major, a major point that Abel makes in this conversation is about wellness and uh, mindfulness. And he follows uh, Jim Dethmer's conscious leadership style. You know, he reads Eckhart Tolle. He uses the Headspace app every morning. He runs every morning. He stretches. He takes time for himself. And that helps him to stay cool, calm, and collected when there's hundreds of millions of dollars being discussed in a boardroom or when he needs to uh, make a tough management decision or just when he's leading his team in a day-to-day. 
And, um, you know, if, if being twice is great, a third time would be icing on the cake. And that's what Abel's looking to do right now with his team at G2 Crowd, uh, the company that he's building as we speak. So we talk about all this. We talk about mindfulness, how to build a great company. Um, and then at the end, we have a, a fun little rant about, you know, why people don't send personals, personalized LinkedIn requests and emails and how it kind of pisses us off. So um, it was a great interview with Goddard. Um, he's a unique CEO. He has a great vision, a really cool head about him, and I think you're going to learn a lot from this one. If you're anyone that's in business, in sales, entrepreneurship, um, if you're interested in mindfulness, this would be a great one to check out. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Goddard Abel. Enjoy. You know, I heard you speak at the Revenue Summit from Sales Hacker uh, a few months ago and knew that I wanted to get you on the show. You had me and pretty much everyone else fired up about your entrepreneurial journey. So I'm excited to learn from you. And I think that, you know, a good place to start. I'd love to hear a little bit of your background. I think you come from uh, a multi-generational entrepreneurial family. So I'd love to hear about the family dynamic and how that may have led to, you know, where your career uh, has gone. Yeah, no, and I've been lucky now, you know, we're building our third company. First two had, I think, a good amount of success, two great exits. Yeah. And, uh, but really the, the common theme across the companies and what's, what's really made it work is our entrepreneurial family. And that's a team, you know, we've really forged. And I think starting the first company, Big Machines really was a long struggle. You know, so it took us, you know, over 12 years to bring that company to success. And ultimately it was bought by Oracle. So it turned out great, but there were many years of hardship. Remember the first seven years, we actually never, never hit our sales plan, which in some ways was quite depressing. But during that time I met Matt Gorniak, who became my head of sales, and he joined my team, I think about 2004, and, and we were really struggling. But then really together, we just figured out, hey, how do you really sell our product? How do you build a great sales team? How do you go to market? And I think we really learned. And as we were learning, we also built a great team. So big machines at the end, you know, we had almost 400 people. And you know, to get there, we literally hired over 1,000 people and you know, probably 100,000 applicants. And so I think we really kind of forged a really strong team with the best of those people. And I think the entrepreneurial family, what it really has is, you know, it, it does, I mean, it is a family, but I, you know, it's kind of different in the family in a sense. It is very performance driven and we're very committed to, to success. But I think the one thing now, and some of us like Matt and I, we've been working together now for 14 years, but we've developed tremendous trust, you know, where I trust him to do his job. He trusts me to do my job. And now that extends across hundreds of people. And we have the kind of alignment, you know, where there's talented people, we all enjoy working together, but we also trust each other. And I think you can just move much faster and everyone knows their role. And one example might be, you know, we go into a sales meeting and you know, Matt knows exactly what I'm going to say. He knows, you know, I know what he's going to say and we're all just dialed into our roles and having that across hundreds of people is pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I, I found it interesting that you mentioned uh, at Big Machines, it's a, you said you didn't hit your sales numbers for seven years. I'm very curious on in that struggle in the midst of it. And I think that was the first company that you founded. Yes. Um, at, was there any point where you were just like, this might not be the best idea. Like we're just not getting to where I thought versus you just had the patience. You knew the long-term vision. You knew it was going to work out. Like what, what, how did you teeter that on that line? Now we had, I had a lot of fear and self-doubt and I remember the bottom for me was really around, uh, I think 2004. And we had, you know, cause we'd been at it for three or four years. And frankly, we'd had to, at the beginning, I started the company, the tail end of the dot-com era. 
this was way back in 2000. And so when we first started, there was a ton of hype. This is the first wave of the internet. And we were able to raise, I think, a ton of money, over $20 million based on a vision and a young, talented team. But then really, you know, three years later, we had very little to show for it. We'd burned through almost all the money. And it had to scale the team down from a peak of 70 people all the way down to 20 people. And, you know, that was really painful and hard to, to let a lot of good people go just because we weren't, we weren't selling enough and the market wasn't there yet. And so I remember we had in 2000, late 2003, I sat down with my co-founder, Chris Schutz, and we kind of had our, kind of what I call our, our come to Jesus moment. You know, do we, we had about, I think a million and a half dollars left in the bank and, you know, we're kind of like, Hey, do we just give up and give the money back or do we keep going? And at the time it wasn't a clear choice, but I think we just decided keep going. And I think the reason we decided to keep going, we did have early customers. At that time, we had about a dozen customers live on our CPQ solution. And I think what gave us hope, one, they were very, you know, they were starting to have great success. And while we weren't able to sell a lot of them, the customers we did get live, they're getting tremendous value. They were streamlining the sales process. And secondly, I think it's just kind of in our nature you know, to be grinders. And we just decided, hey, you know, eventually the market will come. And let's keep at it. Although it was, you know, it was, it was hard to keep going. And, uh, but then I think about three or four years later, we'd started partnering with Salesforce and this whole cloud world started taking off. And so, you know, three or four years later, and I mentioned the first seven years, we didn't hit our sales plan. But I think the next four or five, we hit it every single quarter. And so, you know, in hindsight, it was smart to wait and kind of wait for the market to develop. But, but, you know, but at the time we really didn't know. That's so interesting. And then, you know, you went on to, you have such a high pedigree where you've sold two of those companies, one to Salesforce and one to Oracle, both for several hundred million dollars. How how do you go into those conversations where, you know, there's such a lot, you put so much time and effort in, you know, you have this full company with all the employees and there's just so much money at stake for those negotiations how do you keep a cool head and not get emotional and make the right decisions uh, in those types of environments? Well, one, I think I really just work to be present and remain conscious. And I think that way you can really tap into your intuition. And, um, and I do remember, you know, and I think I really, you know, it's really just finding the, the best path for the company. And for example, you know, recently the second company we built was Steelbrick and that was a much different journey where, you know, I think, I was running the company for eight quarters before we were acquired, and we did hit our sales plan every single quarter. And I think the big difference the second time around, well, one, the market was there. Two, we had that dialed in team in our entrepreneurial family. We knew what we're doing. And, uh, but then, you know, kind of at the, uh, at the end of those two years, I had a meeting with Mark Benioff, the uh, uh, founder and CEO of Salesforce. And, uh, you know, I really expected just to give him an update on our partnership, which was going great. You know, we had hundreds of successful joint customers. But then the conversation pivoted. You know, I think where Mark saw the success we're having, they'd already invested in our company. And um, you know, I think at some point after I showed him the demo, he you know, kind of said, hey, I'd like to acquire your company. And that was a big unexpected change. And, and I think you know, at the time, I think I just kind of breathed and reflected and you know, continued the conversation. And, uh, but ultimately, it just felt like a natural path for us. And really, I think not so much thinking about the money, but in terms of, hey, we were such a close partner that we thought, hey, for our product to continue having success, for our team to have continued having success, it, it did make a lot of sense to join Salesforce. And then I think that's kind of, in general, I think my journey has been, I think most of the success and money came much later. As I mentioned, my first company, we really didn't have any liquidity or any financial real reward for 10 years. 
And, um, and even today, you know, I think day to day, it's not, it's not what drives me, but obviously the nice thing about being an entrepreneur, if you do stay with it, right. I think ultimately, and you build a great company, ultimately you will be rewarded, but, uh, but it's really never, never at the, the top of my mind. So what drives you? Why do you, why do you leave, leave being a high level at Salesforce, massive company? I'm sure the compensation was fantastic. They're doing well to go back and you know, go back to the CEO role of a startup or a growing company. Um, and it seems like if I were to guess, there's a passion for the process, but I'd love to hear what, what drives you to, to create these businesses. Yeah, and it is a passion for building. And, um, and so at Salesforce, after they acquired Steelbrick, I think we were very lucky. You know, I was a SVP and general manager of then you know, Steelbrick or what was, became Salesforce CPQ inside Salesforce. And, and you're right, Salesforce is a fantastic company. They took great care of me and my team. But ultimately, and I was there for five quarters, we successfully integrated Steelbrick. And um, I think even publicly, John Samorjai, the head of acquisitions and corporate development for Salesforce, you know, called it one of his best acquisitions. So that did feel really good. But I think I missed, you know, what I kind of missed while I was at Salesforce was just the the process of building and a lot of it being an entrepreneur, there are tremendous ups and downs because I think there's a tremendous commitment and that mission. Hey, we're really building something together. We're building it from scratch. And I think having that emotional commitment, that attachment, it really is your baby. It also then leads to tremendous highs and lows every day. And, you know, it just feels like tremendous energy that I get, I get from it. And I think ultimately after reflecting on it, I really also had reflection after I left my first company, Big Machines, but I just realized I kind of think it's just what I'm meant to do. And it feels very natural for me to, um, you know, I, I just get more energy, more excitement and, and more joy in my life when I'm, when I'm building something. And uh, so I think it just feels like the right path. So those skills of building and being patient and you say that, I think you just said that you, you're made for it. Like how much do you think your success uh, from an entrepreneurship perspective is just built within you. Like, Hey, this is what I was made to do versus maybe what you've learned along the path from uh, some of the great teams you've worked with, some of your mentors, books you've read, your family upbringing. What do you think is the split there? Yeah. And I think it's all of it. And I was, you mentioned family upbringing and that was really the root for me. So I grew up, my father was an entrepreneur and my father was building a very different kind of company, but he was building a pump manufacturing company. And, uh, but that's actually how I wound up. I was born in Germany. And, uh, but my father, he was building a pump company called Able Pumps. And, uh, but he decided he wanted to open a subsidiary in the US. So he moved us all to Pittsburgh, which obviously was a big personal risk for him. But I really grew up then, you know, kind of around the dinner table, talking to him about his business and going into his office on weekends. And I remember when I was a kid, I think it felt somewhat overwhelming. Like I kind of knew probably like a lot of kids, I wanted to be like my dad and I aspired to be like him, but it felt like too big and too hard, you know, or I would go into this company and be, I was kind of amazed, you know, like, wow, you're able to build this thing. And, uh, but it kind of, it stuck with me. And so I, I, I grew up in that environment. And then I think I did start, uh, start getting involved with entrepreneurship. I came out to business school at Stanford and this was in the late nineties when you know, the, the first wave of the internet was, was starting out. And I remember, you know, at Stanford, we'd have people like Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, you know, one of the first big internet companies come in and speak to us. And so just surrounded by it. And it just felt like, wow, I really want to go, go build my own internet company. And, and so that, that kind of led to big machines. And, but I think then you're right along the way over now 20 years, you know, since I started building companies, it, 
I have picked up a lot of things. And I think most recently being at Salesforce, I did really feel like learning from Mark Benioff. And obviously I'd known him well as a partner and he's an industry leader, but I think now seeing how he actually builds Salesforce and how he creates alignment now at a tremendous scale, you know, 30, 40,000 employees, 12 billion in revenue. That to me is now the inspiration of, hey, how to really go to the next level. Because our first two companies, they were both sold, they were good exits. But now with G2 Crowd, you know, we're really hoping we can go up one more level, build a meaningful public company. And I do feel like I learned a lot, you know, from Mark about, you know, how do you do that? How do you take it to the next level? Yeah, well, there's there's probably not no better mentor uh, for running a successful business right now than Mark Benioff. Going back to your dad's business, did you work for him at all? Or did you just go in when you were young and just like kind of hang around the office while he was working? Uh, I did both. I mean, I'd, you know, when I was really young, I'd go in on weekends and kind of hang out with him, you know, when he was doing extra work. But uh, but then I did actually two summers I worked in his, uh, actually it was a, you know, he had a pump manufacturer plant in Germany. So I actually worked in the plant, actually operating a CNC machine. And, uh, you know, which involved, the more interesting part was he actually got to write some little programs to, you know, his computer numerically controlled machining centers. And then, but then I was also just loading parts, unloading parts, deburring them. So it's kind of real work, which I think also, you know, kind of eight hours a day. And uh, so I think that also gave me an appreciation for, you know, kind of getting your hands dirty and, uh, and, and doing some real work. Yeah, I think that's, that's super important. I, and I, I want to do a quick pivot here because, you know, I've had a good number of people on the show that run businesses, they're CEOs, and I think the stereotype is that the CEO always kind of has his his or her hair on fire. They're high energy. You know, sometimes they might be anxious. And you have such a calming, relaxed presence. You you use the word you know being present earlier. You seem mindful. Like, are you involved in meditation or yoga or anything that helps you be mindful? And do you like do you see that as a strength? Because that's that's what's being portrayed to me right now. Uh, yes. I mean, I do see it as, I mean, it does keep me sane and balanced and frankly, also now doing it for a long time. My first company, Big Machines, I do remember I was very anxious and I felt like I had a storm cloud in my forehead all the time, which was all my worries and anxieties about my company and it would never leave me. Um, but then actually I met this guru, Jim Dethmer, who he has written a book on conscious leadership and he's built a whole community around consciousness and conscious leadership. And I really worked with him coaching sessions and I joined a, a YPO, Young Presidents Organization Forum, which I was in a group with eight other company presidents, young company presidents. And we would share, we'd meet every month and kind of share our experiences. And our theme, though, it became all about pursuing consciousness and you know, gaining that presence. So that in the midst of you know, seeming stress and anxiety, you can keep perspective and keep calm and, and really find that divine path. And I think the other, you know, kind of guru that I also enjoy following is Eckhart Tolle. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a book called The Power of Now. And he also has a whole bunch of great online content. And, and more recently, also, I do use an app, you know, Headspace. And, uh, but I do try every, I start every morning, like this morning, I start out going for a you know, good run. And then, you know, I'll do some stretching. And as I'm doing that, I also do presencing and consciousness. And I do find, you know, spending at least an hour every day on myself, putting myself in a place where I can really perform is really key to, as you said, to kind of keep calm amidst the storm. And I do think that's something now, you know, I'm, I think I've been getting better and better at, but I keep working at it. I agree that it's very important and it's tough to do in a day to day because you tell yourself, 
you're so busy. There's this mountain I have to climb. Whatever, if even if you're not building a company, everyone's has so much stress nowadays. But I think it's really important to work on yourself first. Like, what effects have you seen from that practice that translate either to the professional world or just to personally how you feel and how you engage with other people? Yeah, and it's had a tremendous impact on you know, all facets of my life. So even personally, and I do make it, and you kind of asked, how do you do it? You know, but I do make it a number one priority. So I do it every single morning. Like I work out every single day and I stretch and I do some presencing. And, you know, I commit an hour to that every morning. And frankly, even if I have to, let's say I'm on a trip and I have to sleep an hour less, you know, I'll sleep an hour less, but I, you know, I make sure that happens every morning. And I do think everyone can do it. You, know, you do have to have that dedication and that commitment to say, hey, I'm going to trade out something else. Right? Or some people say they're too busy. But frankly, you know, most people, if you're honest with yourself, you spend an hour a day watching TV or doing something that's maybe not so productive. So I think we can all find that hour. And uh, but I think having that commitment, that daily practice, I think is essential. And it has. And frankly, I didn't always have that when I was at Big Machines, for example. And you know, but partly since then, you know, frankly, I'm 25, 30 pounds lighter than I was at that time. I think I'm physically feeling stronger, more capable, you know, as I've, since I've started doing that, but also then it allows me to connect better with my wife and my kids. You know, we have three, three kids growing up and, um, and also with my employees. So really across the board. And it's one of those things where I think you get more into ease and flow. And so it feels like less effort, but I'm getting greater results in my life. And I think tapping into that, you know, taking care of yourself physically, spiritually, I think is a foundation that you know we can all tap into regardless of what we're doing in life. Do you teach this or evangelize this to other people on your leadership team or at the company? Um, I've been starting to, you know, we just had our leadership offsite for G2 Crowd and, you know, we started with a 10 minute presencing exercise, but I think it's something, frankly, I pray for my next level. I want to weave more into the company. So I think everyone has their personal journey and struggles. And I do think, you know, I think being more conscious, being more present, taking better care of ourselves can you know, help us all enjoy better lives. Yeah, I, I agree fully. And I, I think this is a good segue. I saw on your LinkedIn that you know, part of your bio is that you know, you're trying to live out the peak of your professional, personal and family life. I, I assume this has a major piece of it, but can you explain what that means to you living at the peak? Yes. And I think living at the peak, it does mean being present and really living your life to its full potential. And I think that, you know, that there is a great framework that I found from Chip Conley. He's the founder of Joie de Vivre hospitality hotel chain. And then more recently, he actually served as the head of global hospitality for Airbnb. And he's still a strategic advisor to Airbnb, so also played a big role in their success. But as he was building his first company, Joie de Vivre, and it was this hotel chain, he started out with one, I think it was like one hotel, kind of a tough spot in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. And But he kind of figured out the key to success became creating a great culture. And he really looked at how do you do that in your life? And he applied Maslow's hierarchy of need, really also to a business but also what's interesting about it is, and, and I think the whole, the whole notion of peak is really allowing your customers to have peak experiences, enabling your employees to have peak experiences and your investors. And that really aligns your company. But at the center of it, you know, it does all start with heart and it starts with love and genuine caring. 
And then you can really create a company that creates peak experiences for everyone involved. And I've really taken that you know, beyond, but I think also with consciousness and with presence, applying that to my personal and my family life. And, and frankly, it's always a work in progress. I think I'm far from perfect. So it's always, you know, it's always aspirational. And, uh, but, but it does give me a great purpose that, Hey, you know, every day, every day I'm working on, I'm getting better, getting closer to the peak on, on all dimensions of my life. That's really important. And I think for people listening, although it can be tough to relate to selling a company for nine figures to Salesforce or to Oracle, it's very reassuring, at least to me, that someone of your stature that has all that going on still takes that hour every single morning for your health and your wellness. And if someone like you or uh, a lot of these really high profile people are taking the time to do that, it's clearly important. And, and you know, if you can do it, I can do it. Anyone can do it. So I think that's an important message to share with the ambitious 20 or 30 year old person that's listening to the show that you, sometimes you have to put yourself first and put yourself in the right mindset so that you can conquer the day's challenges, whatever they may be. Indeed. And I think it took me really until I was about 40 to really figure it out. But I wish I'd started doing it earlier you know, because I, I think the has really reduced my level of anxiety and increased the joy in my life and increased my effectiveness. And so, yes, I think anyone in their 20s, you know, I think even start being conscious about that earlier. I think it can give you tremendous tremendous advantage to be more effective, but also to enjoy your life more. And I, ultimately, I think it is, you know, especially building a company or building your career. I mean, it's about the journey. And if you're conscious and present and taking care of yourself, then you can enjoy the journey, you know, as you as you reach your success. How did you get involved or how did you get uh, introduced to mindfulness? It was through YPO, Young Presidents Organization, okay, and, um, and joining this forum. And that's how I met Jim Dethmer, who you know, was kind of became my guru and on my journey to consciousness. Interesting. Okay. Um, I actually have that um, Eckhart Tolle book that's on my dresser right now. I haven't read it yet, but it's it's on the queue. So I'm excited to, I've gotten recommended to it a few times. So I'm excited to read it. And even he also has a great website now and he has these, you can sign up for him. He sends these present moment reminders, you know, he just kind of drops you an email reminding you to to be present. So I think uh, definitely recommend that. Yeah, there's a really good book too that I just read, uh, 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Have you heard of that? Um, I haven't heard of that one. He was uh, like a primetime anchor on NBC or CBS and had a panic attack on national TV and then got introduced to the world of mindfulness. And his whole philosophy is pretty much like it doesn't cure everything, but it makes him feel 10% better. So that's why he does it. Yeah, it's a great practice. Also at Salesforce now, Mark Benioff has really engaged with mindfulness. And you might have seen at Dreamforce, he has monks coming from Plum Village, which are, you know... I, a, I did not see that. Yeah, but he has, a, it's kind of a Zen Buddhist philosophy. And now there are actually mindful rooms also on every floor of Salesforce in their offices to kind of remind the employees to you know, take time. It's a place you can go and meditate, breathe, be conscious. Yeah, I have seen those, which I think is if you if you're in the position like he is or anyone that's owning a company, I think that's that's a really cool idea to help people feel comfortable doing something like that where it's not really at least from the usual standards, it's kind of taboo to do that cuz it's like, hey, we're all so busy, we need to be in meetings all day, like you can't take 5 minutes for yourself. 
uh, I think it's a good change of, of philosophy. And related to that, I think, you know, people talk about time management. I actually think energy management is more important. You know, we've all experienced that because, you know, because after I do my morning run, my workout and I'm ready, you know, then it's amazing what I can achieve in an hour. Whereas, you know, at the end of the day, if I'm grinding hard and it's, I just also sometimes do this, right. It's like eight or 9 PM. I'm really tired or I should just go to bed, but I'm trying to grind out more work and probably not getting anything done. And so I think focusing more on, cause if you have a lot more energy, right, you get so much more done in the same amount of time. I think time management is talked about a lot, right. But I think really think energy management in my mind should be talked about more. Yeah. That's something that Max talked about when, when we were on the podcast about, he called it hot and cold zones. You know, he was hot 6 a.m. to 11, and then he was cold, like kind of 11 to 1, like kind of got that lunchtime funk or whatever exactly his his zones were, and then he got fired back up again in the afternoon. So kind of using those energy cues to be as productive as possible. And then being aware, right? And if you're in one of those low zones, you're not feeling work energy, like just step away from it, right? Go do something else. You know, whatever it is, read a book, go outside, you know, because you're, you're not going to get a lot done anyway. So you might as well do something else you enjoy. And then when you feel the work energy again, then you can come back to it. Yeah, exactly. Most of us now as knowledge workers, right? And I think a lot of, you, know, you probably have a lot of young salespeople on this podcast. I think you can totally do that. You know what I mean? Because even in sales, essentially you're an entrepreneur. Right? And I think it's, that's how I look at it within our company at G2 Crowd, right? Where you have your own book of accounts, your own book of business. And, and ultimately, you know, your job is to deliver as much business from that as possible, but you do also have the flexibility as long as you're getting those results, right? I do think you have some flexibility and you can do it your own way. Yeah. And have you read the book Give and Take by Adam Grant? Um, I have not read the whole book, but I have heard him speak. And uh, he actually came to a Salesforce leadership offsite while I was working at Salesforce, as uh, I think Mark Benioff is also a fan of his. So I've you know, kind of heard him speak and digested some of the concepts. Okay. At my company, we did a, our sales team did a book club. We, we do one book a month. And last month, we did Give and Take. And one of the big examples in the book was this guy that Adam called out that was really a master networker. But his whole philosophy was giving. You know, He'd give advice, he'd give tips, he'd make introductions, things like that. And when I was researching for you, I saw on your LinkedIn that you gave 36 LinkedIn recommendations and have only received one. And that's that's actually one of the things Adam called out about that other gentleman was that he gave a ton. And, and it wasn't like someone gave him one, so he gave one back to reciprocate. I'm curious if you've done that intentionally or what your mindset is maybe with networking or being a, what he would call a giver. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the entrepreneurial family. And you mentioned the 36 recommendations I've given on LinkedIn, but really when somebody from the family asks, I will always do it. And because I also feel like they've given so much to me, you know, because obviously the, the success of my companies has been created by, by those teams. So, and whether it's for LinkedIn recommendation, or I can help them in some other way in their life. And we do talk about now, we also have an alumni family, you know, because obviously many people, and I've you know, been very proud, they've gone on to, to found other companies and uh, had success and even sold other companies. So I'm always, I will always keep helping people that, that I've worked with and whether it's employees, customers, partners, but it also just feels natural. You know, I don't necessarily feel like I'm quote unquote giving. I just feel like I'm you know, kind of helping and, and, and everyone has, has also helped me. So it's something I do try to do every day. And I think even a good amount of what I will call kind of random activity 
obviously there's, and again, there's a kind of, there's a time management aspect. I only do meetings that are important, but I also feel like frankly, I probably spend half of my time on things that don't seem important at the time, but then I'm amazed, which could be, you know, helping someone, giving them a recommendation, taking a meeting that really isn't going to move the needle this quarter. But I do find what I'm amazed at over the years, right? If you keep doing that and I've been doing it for 20 years and all of a sudden all this goodness comes back to you, you know, or just unexpectedly somebody will call you up and be like, Hey, I'd love to sign up for G2 crowd or, you know what I mean? Like it's, so it's kind of maybe more of a, a karma. And, uh, but like, it, it, for me, it just kind of feels natural to do it. And, uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of my job that I enjoy. And that's probably one of the cool things about being an entrepreneur or even being in sales, right? You get to meet lots of people at your own company, at your customers, or you mentioned Max with a sales hacker, right? I've gotten to know him and I feel like now he's a friend and that's something I really enjoy about business. And now, you know, it's like Max calls me and I can help him out. I'll help him out. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm sure he'd do the same for me. And now, you know, I have hundreds or thousands of relationships like that. And it does make, I think, life both fun and, and very effective. Well, for anyone that's read the book, you literally uh, kind of categorize yourself as exactly how Adam Grant would say is a giver. Like they wouldn't call themselves a giver. They don't think of it as giving and they do it because, you know, they want to be helpful and five, 10, 20 years down the line, good things start to happen. Whether you call it karma or whether you call it anything else is just because you put so much good out to the universe and out to the world and it, it tends to return the favor. So I think that's something that a lot of people can learn from and is something that is just I think a really strong quality to have, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're in sales, you're in marketing, or you're doing something else, is just to try to instill it in your nature that when there's an opportunity to help someone, you're willing to do it. And not because you think they'll pay you back or there'll be a financial reward, but because it's the right thing to do. And if you do it enough times, life's going to start giving you some good breaks. Yeah. No, and it's fun. You know, and I think that's one of the nice things after being at, you know, I always connect people. I also help quite a few entrepreneurs now. I think it's also just, yeah, it feels like natural. And it's also, I think it's the enjoyable part of business to me. I want to talk about ideas for a second. I think in a lot of people say, I think Mark Cuban said it, in business, you only have to be right once. And you've been, quote unquote, right two times and are working on a, a great company right now, G2 Crowd. So how do you come up with ideas, whether it's a business idea or otherwise? Do you set time for that? where you're always thinking about it? Or is it kind of just like, hey, you're walking down the street or you're in the shower and you're like, hey, you know, B2B reviews of, of tech products, that would be a good idea. Like, how does that process work for you? Yeah, I think it's more, it's an ongoing process. And I think, that, you know, for example, the idea for G2 Crowd, it really, well, it just kind of seemed obvious to me, but it, you know, it kind of came up as we're building our first company, Big Machines. And even as we're building Steelbrick, you know, we were always selling enterprise software. And, um, you know, and I think one of the things we had to deal with were there are traditional analysts out there, you know, companies like Gartner. And especially if you're selling to the enterprise, and especially when I was building my first company, Big Machines, you know, this is 10, 15 years ago, they were still very influential. And so if you want to get to certain enterprise buyers, if you weren't included in that Gartner Magic Quadrant, it's very hard as a startup to get in there. And so obviously, you know, we worked on that for years. But I remember I was very frustrated. It took us nine years to get into a Gartner report. And I think it took us 12 years to be called a leader. And ultimately, that, that was very helpful. I think right after Gardner called us a leader, Oracle bought the company. But, but I, was very, I just thought it was way too slow of a process. And, um, and the other thing I think I saw, and we started G2Crowd in 2012. But by then, you know, we were all using reviews on Amazon to buy products. 
We're using reviews on Yelp to find bars and restaurants. We're using reviews on TripAdvisor to find hotels. And what amazed me for our own industry, you know, for enterprise business software, it didn't exist. And so it just felt like, oh, this is, you know, it seemed like an obvious idea in the sense I'm like, hey, somebody's going to do it and I think it's going to work. So it might as well be us. And, um, and I think that's where the best ideas come is, you know, and I think a lot of people talk about scratch your own itch, but in a way it was scratching my own itch because what I wanted as an entrepreneur, I wanted my customers to validate me. Like I didn't want to talk to analysts and, and I wanted a quick way to get recognition. Once I put a great product out there, once I had really happy customers, I wanted a third party to validate that. And that's exactly why we built G2 crowd. And now it's awesome to see it working. And actually later that same theme actually led to our, you know, we raised a series B for G2 crowd from Excel last year. Excel, I think probably most of you have heard of them. They're one of the most successful venture capital firms. So they've backed companies like Facebook and Slack and Dropbox. You know, so a lot, a lot of great companies. But they actually came to us last year. So what they said is, wow, we're starting to see G2 Crowd and all these entrepreneur pitches. And so kind of exactly what I envisioned, there was all these next generation of entrepreneurs. They were using G2 Crowd, you know, because once you get 10 plus real customer reviews, you get included in our grid. That's our version of the quadrant, except the big difference is ours is real time. And they were starting using all their investor pitches to gain validation. And it also led to the point that Excel said, oh, wow, we got to check out what's this G2 Crowd thing. And then they came to us and said, hey, we'd love to invest because we think this can be a big, big winning company. So it's just kind of nice to then see that that vision start to come to life. And frankly, I still have tons of business ideas. And that's one maybe frustration as an entrepreneur, kind of in our entrepreneurial family, right? We want to kind of figure out how do we build more than one company at the same time? And that's hard to do, right? Because I think a lot of our genius is probably, you know, you're really grinding hard on just one thing. But I think part of my longer term vision is, and we did it a bit, Steelbrick and G2 Crowd, we're actually building in parallel. Yeah. And then obviously once, once we were acquired by Salesforce, I, I focused hundred percent on that. I was still on the board of G2 Crowd, but I do think, you know, that that to me is kind of the next level. How can we help with our family, right? How can we realize more than one idea at once? And uh, because I see so many out there, you know, and I, I do think that's also the best, you know, any of you interested in in becoming an entrepreneur, I do think it's best to solve a problem, you know, intimately. Because if you try to build something that, you know, you, you don't have personal passion or insight into, and it's not really a problem you're solving for yourself, I just don't think you're going to do it well. You know, even think of some of the great startups like Dropbox, right? Uh, their founder, he just wanted a better way to share his own files, right? Or you look at like Facebook, I think Mark Zuckerberg, you know, wanted to find a girlfriend at Harvard, right? But, you know, you're solving your own problem. And then I think you'll do it really well. Whereas if it's, you know, you're kind of just reading something and like intellectually sounds like it'll be a good thing, but you don't really feel it. I don't think you're going to build a great company. That definitely makes sense. And we've been talking a little bit in passing about G2, G2 crowd, excuse me, but I want to dig in a little bit on on that. So I know that you, you recently came back, you know, announced as a CEO. So that's kind of the main focus for you right now until you get on Richard Branson status and start owning, you know, 400 businesses. Um, but for the moment, you know, what are the key growth drivers of G2 crowd and maybe what's, what's something that is a struggle from you guys reaching the next level, uh, to where you want to get to. Yeah. And G2 crowd. And I mentioned the idea, it's a bit like a Yelp, but for enterprise software. So, or, or like Glassdoor, right? We capture real user reviews in real time. And we do it, you know, we have 50,000 different enterprise or business software products listed on G2 Crowd now. And uh, I mean, I think the, the idea is really starting to work. You know, we have half a million reviews of, uh, of those products. And, uh, but I'd say the challenge still is, you know, getting even more reviews. So right now the products on our site, you know, I mentioned 50,000 listed, I think 15,000 actually have reviews. And so I think 
Yeah, really the next level for us is going to be building a much bigger brand. So we hired a new CMO, Ryan Bonici. He joined us from HubSpot. And I do think HubSpot's one of the best, if not the best kind of inbound content marketing company. And so we're also going to be really ramping up, you know, the content that we're producing and the awareness we have in the market, because we want every, every time somebody's thinking about buying business technology that they think of G2 Crowd, they come to our site and as a buyer of technology, get great advice. And we also want people to be aware, you know, hey, if you're a real expert on a product, you know, whether it's a marketing automation product like HubSpot or that's a great sales application that you, know, you also people think of, hey, let me go to G2 Crowd to get some advice. And maybe let me also go there to share you know, my experience and, and to share some reviews. And so I think building that community further and getting that flywheel spinning more and more is really where, where we want to take it over the next couple of years. And, and we do think ultimately that can also build a great business you know, because right now everyone in our economy is talking about digital transformation and every business you know, sees an opportunity, but also is kind of afraid you know, of getting Amazon or not adopting the right technology can really hurt your business or it can really help you re reach your full potential. So we think it's essential for the whole world now for the economy that businesses find and use the best technology. And that's really our mission at G2 Crowd to help businesses reach their full potential by finding that technology based on great peer advice. Yeah, well, I think it's a it's definitely a, a good concept too, because you're right, I use, I don't go to eat without using Yelp, like never. Um, I don't, I don't trust just walking in somewhere nowadays. Um, so I couldn't even imagine 10 years ago, 15 years ago, just, all right, let's just go try out this random burrito spot and, you know, hope it's good versus the one that's next door. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting for B2B, especially because you're spending so much more money. It's a longer sales cycle. Uh, there's the implications are far more vast than what I'm eating for dinner. So I think it makes sense to know from people that have bought the solution and are using it, is it valuable? Should I get this CRM versus that CRM or, or whatever the case may be? So I think it's interesting that there wasn't, it didn't already exist in 2012 before you folks. And so it's, it's definitely interesting from someone that's also in B2B that this is in the market now. Right. And I'd say the other aspect of it is discovery. Yeah, that's also where, you know, Yelp, you mentioned can help you with the restaurant. Yeah, because you kind of like most of us, you kind of get used to going to the same three restaurants. And you're like, hey, I'd like to try something different. You know, I think then Yelp can help you discover what's new and up and coming. And that's really our other part of our vision for YouTube Crowd. You know, whether you're in sales or marketing, right? You can find peer salespeople that are, you know, hey, what apps are they using to really take them to the next level? Mm. And I think that's also exciting, you know, obviously for, you know, if you're that salesperson, you want to find a great next technology, but it's also great for the entrepreneur building that technology. How do they get in the hands of the right people? And and that's one of the reasons we also we did partner with LinkedIn, and LinkedIn also invested in G2 Crowd because you know, most of us we have our professional networks in LinkedIn, and so you can find you know your peers, and then you can actually see hey what technologies are they using and what's making them successful. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, talking before I know that you mentioned some of the funding you got recently. You're in a major growth zone, so I'd I'd love for you to maybe just take a second to talk through. Where people can find you, you know, what areas you're, you're you're growing for G2 Crowd, and then where else maybe people can find you personally on social media. Sure, and um, you know, G2 Crowd, and obviously, you know, go to Google or it's g2crowd.com. And so, I would encourage all of you, you know, if you are thinking about hey, what technology would work best for you and your business, uh, definitely check that out. And it's a free resource, you know, just like Yelp is free. So, uh, and, and so I'd love for all of you to do that. And then I think the, um, in terms of connecting with me, I do use LinkedIn quite a bit. So that's probably the best way. 
And then the one thing I would say, some people you know, don't take the time to personalize their LinkedIn outreach, but I think if somebody reaches out to me with personal outreach, I, I will, odds are I will respond. And uh, so, you know, if there's something I could be helpful with, uh, please do reach out. And, um, and I think the other you know, opportunity, we are really hiring our team. So last two years, we've grown from 50 to about 200 employees already. And we're planning to continue that. You know, we'll probably double the team again over the next couple of years. And we do have great opportunities, we believe, to join our entrepreneurial family. And, uh, you know, but that, you know, we're looking for people in sales and marketing engineers to keep building our platform. Um, so really across the board, we're, uh, we're continuing to build a team. And so, you know, any of you that are interested, uh, please do reach out. Awesome. And you brought up the point on LinkedIn and I, I have to, I have to comment on that. How many times do you have to get a cold in mail from someone that just says, hello, I'd like to add you to my personal network. And then you look and it's like, they're in sales or they're a CEO or something. It's like, do you, is this how you send emails to people? Is this how you try to connect? There's no chance I'm, I'm accepting that. It's just, it, I, it's really hard for me to fathom. And it's really, to be honest, it's over 90% or maybe even over 95% that are generic. And, uh, but I think you're right. It's a massive missed opportunity. And I personally, I will always personalize the LinkedIn invite you know, whether it's a customer, an employee or whomever, because it also, you know, it just kind of shows them that I care, right? I, I write them some note, Hey, we met about this. I'd love to talk to you about that. And I find even for myself, it works great, you know, but you do have to take the time to personalize, but I, I agree. Like worst practice is you ping like a hundred people. You're like, or sometimes you get those, Oh, we know a lot of the same people I'd like to connect. It's like, you know, well, that, that makes no sense. Right. Versus, Hey, well, I looked at your profile. I see what you're doing at G2 Crowd. I'd love to talk to you about this because I think I could help you there or, you know, but it's, they've, but taking that time. And I do think, I mean, that's another, I think for, I think it's better to do less outreach, you know, but, but make it much more personalized. And I think we all know it, but it is amazing how few people actually take the time to personalize. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to sell to someone or sell yourself to someone to, to, uh, for a job or you want advice from that person, you got to put in the effort. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Frankly, I'd also say if you're not trying to sell to someone, you know, it's kind of more back to that giver notion, right? But if you like, I mean, it's kind of like you're showing, do you give a shit about the person or not, right? Right. And I think by not personalizing, you're not, you're not caring. Yeah, it's all effort. I mean, it just shows the type of effort you're willing to put in or not put into the relationship that you potentially want to forge. And I think especially, and we're all consumed by so much noise now, right? I think... I think without personalization, you really, I don't think you're going to be successful. No, not at all. So that goes past, past LinkedIn too. I mean, email, call, write a handwritten letter. Not really where I expected to end the interview, but I mean, it's just <laughs> like, I just, it's really a pet peeve of mine when I see that. So get out there and personalize your outreach people. Um, Goddard, man, this is, this is a hoot. Loved having you on. Love talking about, you know, the, the journey the mindfulness, the personalization, everything. So thanks thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Thomas. And uh, I'll send you a personalized LinkedIn so we can. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. Really hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, if you found any value, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please head on over uh, and give it a five-star rating, subscribe, review, whether it's on the iTunes app, whether it's on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, if it's there. Um, really appreciate you. You can find me at tomalamo.com, T 
T-O-M-A-L-A-I-M-O.com for the blog, all the show notes, and Tommy Tahoe uh, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Find me on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So thanks so much. Grateful for you. Have a great week.